may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to say from the outset, we are going to fly. We are going to fly through a passage. And I also want to say from the outset that I, I don't believe I will be able to answer every single question or objection that is raised from this passage. Feel free, as always, to talk after uh, the service, to email, to call, to get together, because this is an enormous issue that we need to understand And I did contemplate splitting this message up into really three parts. There are three sections of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I contemplated doing that, splitting it up into those three sections. But I had a fear in doing that. And my fear in doing that was that we would miss the overall tone of Paul's words in the verses that we're looking at. If we were only to take each section at at, at a time, at a chunk for one week at a time, I think the second week when we deal with, or if we were to do this, when we would deal with our role in sanctification, I think we would all leave after that sermon has been preached and never want to come back to church. Um, If we only have our role in sanctification in front of our eyes, We will be so bogged down, so depressed, so frustrated that I don't think we would ever even hear or see the hope that is mentioned by Paul in sanctification, that it is God who is at work in us. Now, we know that intellectually, but I wanted to keep the tone of Paul's words. If we're honest about these verses, and I want to read them for us before we dive in completely, but if we're honest about these verses... Though they do have incredibly rich, deep theology and doctrine, again, I don't think that that's entirely Paul's main point. Just as we looked at the great parabola over the last three weeks, and we saw really the main point of Jesus, uh, or Paul describing Jesus' condescension and his exaltation and the preeminent glory that he had, the main point was not to give us a rich theology of Jesus Christ, though it is that, The main point was to say, be like him. Have the attitude in yourselves. You are struggling with pride. You are struggling with humility. You are struggling to live out these truths. So let me give you the example you need to follow. In giving us the example, we have an incredible picture of the preeminence, the condescension, and the exaltation of Jesus. I think in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 that we're going to look at this morning... I don't think that Paul is intending necessarily to give us a theology of sanctification. I think if we're very honest at face value, what he is asking is, obey even if I don't make it out of jail. I think if we can sum up his words, that's what he's saying. Please continue to obey the same way that you've always obeyed, even if I don't make it out of jail. He thinks that he's going to make it out of jail. He's writing from Rome in jail. But I think he's saying, in fact, he said it earlier in chapter 1, verse 27. Go ahead and turn there really quickly. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and I see you or I remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
This is a concern on Paul's mind and on his heart that this church would have all of their stock in Paul. And if Paul is remaining in jail or even worse, if he is killed, how are we to continue in the faith, in the truth, in the word, in the spirit, in the gospel? And that's why I think Paul says, oh, even though I've been there and you've obeyed in my presence, continue that obedience, even if I'm absent, because it's God who's going to finish it, not me. I think that is the reason why these verses are here. I think that's the general uh, reason why Paul is writing. Now, we can dive in as we normally do, and we can see the deep theology, the rich doctrine, and I believe the Spirit has designed this passage to do that. But by way of context, I just wanted to set the stage. That's why Paul is writing these verses. So if we were to chop it up, I think we'd miss the overall tone that Paul is trying to say, oh, Maybe I've been able to help you in your sanctification. Maybe I've been able to encourage you in the faith. But even if I die, God's the one who is ultimately doing the work. So do not fear. And if we walked out of here, if we were to split this into three parts, and the second week, next week, we were to just talk about our role, I think we'd walk away with fear and doubt. And that's not the purpose of these verses. So with that in mind as a little introduction, Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul writes, So then, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These verses really form the so what of the last verses that we described from verse 5 through verse 11. That great parabola, the preeminence of Christ, the condescension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. Now, so what? Therefore, verse 12, so what? Who cares if that's what Jesus did? Why does it matter for me today? Here's what matters. Here's how Paul will connect the gospel to everyday life. And if... The last three weeks wasn't enough tension and mystery for you in figuring out how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the exact same time. Paul's going to give us even more tension, even more mystery. Whose role, uh, whose job is it to be sanctified, to finish your sanctification? Is it yours or is it God's? Yes, it's both. How does that work out? There is a mystery there. That's why that word is there in the title of the sermon. We're going to look at the motivation and the mystery of sanctification because it is a mystery And we often find ourselves kicking against things that are mysteries. We often find ourselves kicking against things that are paradoxical, such as prayer. We don't don't like the concept of prayer, knowing that we have a sovereign God who already knows what we're going to pray for. How does that work? Why should we pray? Well, I would would say if he's not sovereign, why should we pray at all? Like, there's no reason. If he's not sovereign and can't do anything when we're pleading with him, then we shouldn't pray. The doctrine of God's sovereignty encourages my prayer life. But if he knows and we're commanded to, how do you you hold those two things together? Mystery. It's a mystery. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. How do you hold that together? Mystery. Sanctification. How do we hold this together? If I can encourage us, I think the best way to hold it together, the mystery, is to take both at face value. Take both at face value. Let's listen to the text, let's listen to the Spirit, let's listen to Paul, and let's take both at face value. We are responsible for working, and God is responsible for working. How they work together, we'll need to clarify. 
And there will still be mystery by the end of this sermon. But let's take both at face value. Luther, as we learned this morning, struggled with this concept. So much so that even passages that I think Paul would completely agree with, I know he would agree with, in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Luther said we should throw James out of our Bibles. Because, no, it's all about faith. His pendulum was swinging from a Roman Catholic understanding of the gospel that you are given grace and then you must work to earn in certain ways the grace that God gives. The Mormons would agree with that doctrine. Second Nephi 25:23. it is by grace that we are saved after we do all we can do. Is that what these verses are describing? Not at all. The mystery is everywhere in the scriptures. The mystery is in James 2. You must have faith that is a gift of God, but you must have faith that works. And if you don't have faith that works, then you don't truly have faith. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at that in a little bit. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. Paul says, I labor for this reason, striving, doing work, but only according to the power of him who works within me. I work, but God works through me. In another place, Paul says, I worked harder than all the rest of them, but only through the power of God that works in me. I work, God works. Who's working? We both are. Yes. One pastor said, these verses really lay out for us the heads and tails of the same coin of sanctification. So, before we dive into these verses, we need to define sanctification. And I believe, hopefully, Lord willing, this will clarify one of the issues of these verses. One of the issues that these verses um, present, one of the problems that they present, a lot of people see, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and they hear work for your salvation. Now, obviously, grammatically, it does not say that. It says work out, not work for. If Paul wanted to say work for, he would have said it because the Greek language is extremely meticulous, and he could have said work to earn your salvation, but he said work out what you already have. But... I think one of the issues with that verse, one of the reasons why we struggle with it, is that word salvation. That word salvation. The New Testament describes salvation in three ways. I'm going to give you a, a grid to understand three ways that the New Testament describes salvation. The New Testament describes salvation as a one-time act in the past when Jesus died on the cross and justified you by giving you grace and faith to believe. That's the normal concept. That's the majority concept. That's the normal understanding. The, the majority of the times we see the word salvation used in the New Testament, it means that. It refers to that. Some verses that I could give you are Romans 1.16. Uh, Brian Nix was speaking about this from Luther's vantage point. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, unto being justified, uh, unto the past uh, work of Jesus Christ being placed into your account, being forgiven, being saved, given eternal life. It's all over the New Testament, and I don't think I need to clarify that use of the word salvation. It refers to justification. Do we do anything to earn or to deserve or to gain or to acquire salvation? We do nothing. Therefore, in theology, we refer to salvation or this salvation, this understanding of justification as a monergistic understanding. One person doing the work to bring about salvation. And it's God, not us. It's not synergistic. We're not working together to gain justification. 
So one, justification, past, monergistic, salvation. A second way that salvation is used, the word salvation is used in the New Testament, is in reference to the future. So we've seen the past, another way is in reference to the future. Uh, Because of time, let me just give you some verses. We aren't going to turn there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 5 and verse 9. Peter writes, you are eagerly awaiting the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. What is that a reference to? Am I waiting the salvation of my soul as far as justification is concerned? Am I not justified and I'm waiting to be justified in a future moment? No. That word salvation, when Peter says you are awaiting the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, that word salvation is a reference to future glorification. So we have justification in the past. We are also seeking that day when we will be saved from the presence of sin. There are so many ways to to slice these understandings of salvation up. In in justification, it's a past uh, reality. It is monergistic. God's the only one who's working in it. And in justification, sin's penalty is paid in full. It is finished. Sin's penalty is paid in full. In glorification, it's future. It's not past, it's future. We're waiting for it. In glorification, is glorification monergistic or synergistic? Do we do anything to get ourselves to heaven? No, we do not do anything to be glorified in heaven. We don't do anything uh, to have a regenerated, completely reworked, completely glorified body, heart, soul, mind. That is monergistic as well. So justification, past, monergistic. It is dealing with the penalty of sin glorification, future, monergistic as well. And it's dealing with the presence of sin, being gone forever. But in the here and now, there is a third use of the word salvation. And if it's not past and it's not future, what do we have? We've got the present. And if it's not justification, a one-time declaration of Jesus, you are not guilty, you are forgiven. So if you died right after Jesus justifies you through the faith and the grace that you have to believe, you go to heaven and you're glorified. Justification, past. Glorification, future. Sanctification, present. A couple other verses for you for sanctification. Hebrews 12, 11, Thess- 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. Use the word salvation in a present tense, in a, in a way that it speaks to sanctifying your heart now. So in justification, sin's penalty is paid in full. In glorification, sin's presence is gone forever. And in sanctification, in the here and now, we still struggle with sin, but its power is being destroyed. We certainly are living in the presence of sin. We certainly live with this earthly, fleshly body. And in sanctification, if we can define it this way, we would say that sanctification is the process by which God works in us and through us to make us holy. It is dealing with the presence of our sin. Or dealing with the power of our sin. This is why the song that we sang, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing, uh, he breaks the power of canceled sin. When was sin canceled? When was the record of debt canceled? In justification. Oh, but we still struggle with sin. He breaks that power in sanctification. That's one of the reasons why we sang that song. For one really pregnant good line. He breaks the power of canceled sin. That is the process 
of defi- uh, uh, the definition of the process of sanctification. Sanctify. Sanctify comes from a Latin word, sanctus, which means holy. We don't have a way in our English language to turn holy into a verb. We have to say to make holy. We, we can't say we holify something. Um, the Greek can. The Greek does. The Greek enables us to turn holy into an adjective, into an adverb, or into a noun, or into a verb. It allows us to change holy into all sorts of different uh, words. So when you see sanctify, you're just seeing holy. You're seeing the word holy, but in a verb, to make holy. One commentator says this, Sanctification is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews the whole nature of him into the image of God, and then enables him to perform good works. So sanctification is a process. It is not a one-time act. That's another way we can split these up. Justification is a one-time act. Glorification is a one-time act. Sanctification is not a one-time act. So maybe you'll come across those words for salvation in the New Testament and you'll see, oh, that's future. We're awaiting our salvation. We're not waiting for justification. We're awaiting glorification. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when Paul says, work out your salvation, do you think that is a past tense justification? Do you think it is a future tense glorification? Or do you think it is a present tense sanctification? Present tense. So, I think if this word were translated very meticulously, work out your sanctification, maybe we would be a little bit more clear. Not work for your salvation, but absolutely work for your sanctification. You are commanded to work out your sanctification. You're not commanded to work for your justification. You are commanded to be actively involved in the process of sanctification. Some misconceptions of sanctification. Just three We don't have enough time. I had nine. We don't have enough time to get to nine misconceptions. Number one, uh, going to church just gets me sanctified. This is sanctification through osmosis. If I go to church, I would become more holy. That's why we read expository listening. Just because you are in the seat you are in right now does not mean that you are being made more holy through the preaching of the word of God. You have to hear it, appropriate it, apply it. You have work to do. Same works with uh, Christian fellowship. Just because I'm hanging out with other Christians doesn't mean that that makes me more holy. A second misconception is that uh, sanctification is just changing my external behavior. Just change my external behavior. That's all being made holy looks like. Sanctification is dealing with external behavior. It's just changing my external behavior. Uh, That would be like somebody going to the emergency room, complaining of chest pains, um, they've been eating at Tommy's Burgers and, and um, just chili cheese sauce all over their shirt. And they go to the emergency room. I have chest pains. The doctor does some sort of a scan. I don't know what they are. Um, he does a scan, finds out you've got clogged arteries. We have to go inside and fix your heart. We've got to fix what's going on. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. And he changes his Tommy's chili stained shirt, puts on a new clean shirt and says, I'm good. I'm fine. I have a clean shirt. My dirty shirt's done. I have a clean shirt. I'm fine. And he walks away. And a heart attack happens. Sanctification is not merely fundamentally dealing with the external behavior. Sanctification is dealing with your heart. Sanctification is dealing with your desires, which is why Paul is going to say 
he works, God works in you both to will and to work. Order is crucial. He works in you to create a volitional desire to do something, and then you do it. If you just had a desire to do something, but you didn't do it, that wouldn't be any good. And if you just did things externally without changing your heart, that would not be true sanctification. A third misconception is that it just doesn't matter if I change. Everybody's human. Everybody sins. I can stay the same and becoming more holy really doesn't matter in the long run. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 14. Does sanctification matter? The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will what? See the Lord. If we are not being made more holy and actively involved in the process of sanctification, then we will not see the Lord. Now you know why I didn't want to have one message on that truth and say, all right, be warm and be filled. And everybody's walking out of the door saying, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm struggling with sanctification. I still sin. So with that as another introduction to these verses dealing with sanctification, let's dive into them together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Does sanctification matter? Absolutely. Even though we all are sinners, sanctification absolutely matters. Without it, we will not see the Lord. It is clear. I don't know how much clearer the Bible could be. And so this morning, in these verses, we are going to see three realities about our sanctification. Three very clear, very obvious from the text realities about our salvation. Number one, we're going to look at the motivation of our sanctification. Number two, we're going to look at the role that we play in sanctification, our role in sanctification. And number three, we're going to look at God's role in sanctification. So the motivation for our sanctification, our role in sanctification, and God's role in sanctification. Let's start in verse 12 with the motivation for sanctification. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So then, because of, therefore, Paul is hinging these words that he's about to say to the gospel message that he just declared. So then, and I really believe that he's going to give us two motivating factors in our own sanctification from the previous verses from 5 to 11. Motivation number one is the example of Christ's obedience. Christ is the example of obedience. Just as Jesus, in verse 8, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so too, so then, you be obedient. You be obedient. This same truth is echoed in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We often quote verses 1 and 2, a cloud of witnesses that encourages us. We must run the race with endurance. We must lay aside sin. We must lay aside anything that encumbers us. And then we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, because he ran that race. He ran it to perfection. Who, for the joy before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and obeyed his Father even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus never asks us to do something he himself doesn't do. He paves the way for it. 
He says to us, disciples, if you want to follow me, you must hate father and mother. Leave them. Leave everything behind. What did he do when he stepped out of heaven and came to earth? He left everything behind. So Jesus is our perfect example of obedience. And he has paved the way for us to obey. A second motivating factor in these verses is that Christ is not only the example of obedience, but he is the example of the reward. We often don't like to talk about rewards uh, because we think that there's something selfish involved in, oh, I want to do this so I can get rewarded. I can do this good behavior so that I can be rewarded. But I don't know if that's quite biblical. I don't think it is. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 again. Who, Jesus, he despised the shame. He forgot about everything and plowed onto the cross and he did it for the joy that was set before him. He had a reward and that reward is spelled out in Hebrews chapter one, that he would bring many sons to glory if he obeyed his father. You and I were part of the reward that Jesus Christ looked to that allowed him, that forced him, that pressed him on to say, I will obey my father. I think the first reward that Jesus desired is the reward of the father's glory. I think the second reward that Jesus desired in going to the cross is us, is redeeming for himself a people that would worship and praise the Father for all of eternity. And I think the second reason, or the third uh, reason, the third reward that Jesus had was his exaltation in his utter humiliation and obedience. He would be exalted. So too, we are, we are encouraged by rewards. We'll get crowns in heaven. We'll get jewels in heaven, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. And just as Jesus paved the way and was our example in obedience, I believe Jesus is the example of looking to the reward, the glory that God the Father will receive, the reward that we will get in fellowship with him and in uh, glorifying him through the crowns and the jewels. So I believe all of those different aspects in verse 12. So then, my beloved, because of those things, there are many more motivations you can find in the gospel. But the reality is in the gospel. My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Our motivation is Jesus. Because of Christ's obedience, we have reason to obey ourselves. Paul also says, my beloved, those who are loved by God and that I love as well. Those whom I love and those God loves. So this cannot mean work for your salvation because he's describing those that God has already called to himself and loves. So it cannot be you who are saved work for salvation. Paul says you are loved. And then he also says this, just as you've always obeyed, he's going to command them. It's an imperative, work out your salvation. He's about to command them. But he doesn't say, would you get your act together already? Would you start obeying already? He says, I'm asking you to do something you're already doing. This is called affirmation. This is not Paul desiring that the Philippian church would doubt their salvation. This is Paul saying, continue, excel still more. You are loved by God. You are already obeying. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And I would say the same for us. We're going to see this more in chapter 4, a pattern of confrontation when we get to chapter 4. 
But there's an amazing pattern of confrontation that Paul gives us in chapter 4. And also here, if you are going to encourage someone or command somebody to do something, if you are going to confront sin and ask them to repent and turn and live righteously, don't just go to their face and say, get your act together. Paul gives us a little bit of a sandwich principle. You are heirs of the throne of grace. You, you have obeyed in so many different areas. There's one area that I want to encourage you with, but please know God's grace is evident in your life. Sometimes when we confront, we do so in such a way we cause doubt. We bring doubt. Am I even saved? I don't want to doubt anybody or bring doubt upon anybody when I'm confronting them in their sin. I want to encourage him. Keep on growing in your sanctification. We all struggle with that. That's why Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck. So Paul gives us many different motivating factors from the gospel to the affirmation that there is no need for doubt here and that we are already loved by God and by the apostles. So that's our motivation for sanctification. I told you we're going to fly Our role in sanctification. Our role in sanctification is in the end of verse 12. And it is one word in the Greek. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've seen our motivation for sanctification. Now our role in sanctification. First, let's make some observations. Number one, there is nothing passive about the end of verse 12. Work out your salvation. There is no lazy boy Christianity here that you can just sit back, relax, and let God do the working in and through you. You must work. To get a little bit grammatical here, the word work out is in the present tense, meaning it's ongoing. You continually do this. You don't do this in one moment. You are ongoing in your working out. Secondly, it's in the middle voice. Instead of being in the active voice of Um, You are doing this for something else or passive voice. Somebody is doing this to you. This is you are doing this for yourself. This is you are doing it. It's um, I can use a technical word. It's reflexive. You are doing this to yourself for yourself. Present tense for yourself. You are the one doing it. And it's not a suggestion either. It's It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a command. If we do not do this, we are not living righteously before the Lord. Now, again, let's make some more observations. There's nothing passive in here. It's very active and it's a command, but it does not say that we work for our salvation or we work to earn our salvation. Paul is very specific. Work out the salvation you already have. Now, Salvation, we've already defined, that's the term for sanctification, not past tense justification. But let's define the word work or work out. And I want to define it for us in another book in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us two very specific types of working In back-to-back verses, one that if we did, we would be condemned to hell, and one that if we don't do, we will be condemned to hell. Okay, I want us to be very careful and clear here. You know these verses. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, you have been saved through faith, and that working of grace and faith to believe is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of what? 
works. It's not a result of works. So you can't boast about your justification or earning it or deserving it. It's not a result of your works. That's why some people, when they get to Philippians chapter 2, they say, well, this says works, and we shouldn't be working because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9 says, don't work. In fact, if you try to work to earn grace, you nullify grace. That's a very bad thing to do. But, verse 10 gives us another word, works. Same exact word, but it's a very different type of works. We aren't supposed to work to earn salvation. It's not a result, verse 9, of works. But, verse 10, we are his workmanship, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would look upon them and think, that'd be cool if I could do that. No, so that we would walk in them. So here in verse 9 and verse 10, we have works that are bad. Works that are condemning. And then verse 10, we have works that if we're not a part of, it proves that we don't have salvation and justification to begin with. We must work. Not to earn salvation. We must work because we have salvation. We must work because we have salvation. How do we do that? How do we work? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where the middle of the second sermon would have been. Where we'd spend all of our time discussing the effort that we must make in sanctification. Work, work, work. Strive, strive, strive. Agonize, agonize, agonize. We're only going to look at a couple verses. Ephesians 2, we looked at, we need to work because we are his workmanship created for those good works that we would walk in them, that we would do them. What does it look like to do that? Is it easy? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Uh, the Olympians know that right now. Those that, um, just, I, I think, if you have a little bit of a longer nose, you get first place than the person that just missed it behind you in speed skating. They, they run in such a way that they're going to win. That's what they do. They don't chill out. They don't, you know, take a day off. They work for four years for a couple seconds and then back to four years of training. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. They're doing that for a gold medal. Back then it was a wreath made out of leaves. We're doing it for something that can never be taken away. So, because of that, verse 26, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but instead I discipline my body. I take my body to the gym, literally. I take my body to work out, and I make it my slave. I tell my body what it's going to do, spiritually, physically, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. How are we supposed to work in our role in sanctification with blood, sweat, and tears, with agonizing nature? Paul uses the word agonizomize in several places in Colossians and Ephesians, describing the agony with which he works out his salvation. He doesn't work for He works out. Another passage we could turn to to show what it looks like to deal radically with our own sanctification would be Matthew 5, 28. It deals with 
pluck out your eye if it causes you to stumble. Cut off your hand. And obviously he's not talking about that literally because if you pluck out your right eye because you are looking with lust at somebody, guess what? You still have a left eye and you can still lust. Even if you pluck out your left eye, you can still lust in your mind. So that's not the issue. The issue is radical amputation. The issue is radically diving into your heart and doing whatever it takes to pursue holiness. And I think John Piper says it well when he says, There are many professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life, that nullifies the threats of the Bible and puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical warnings. Eh, we all struggle with sin. Don't worry, those warnings don't apply to you. I believe this view of the Christian life is comforting thousands who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Jesus said, if you don't fight lust, you will not go to heaven. He said that. Now, he's not saying, if you fight your lust, you will go to heaven. What he is saying is, if you don't fight your lust, it is proof that you haven't been saved because saved people fight. Ephesians 4, put on your new self, put off your old self, fight the sin that still lives in your inner man, that still lives in your fleshly body. That's one of the reasons why heaven is going to be wonderful, because we don't have to fight anymore. We no longer have to fight sin. Our body of sin is done away with. If you're not fighting, you're in a lot of trouble. Romans 6 talks about fighting sin. Don't present your members, don't continue to present your members of your body to sin that you would have to obey your flesh's lusts. Don't do that. Sometimes I think our prayers betray our understanding of sanctification. Have you ever noticed yourself praying, oh, God, just do this work through me. Just work this out in me. Just give me the grace to do this and just do that for me. Like we just get to sit back and God's going to do it for us. It reminds me of um, feeding my daughter. She loves animal cookies. And she'll just take handfuls of them and just start like a chipmunk shoving them in her cheeks. And as she's doing that, with spit flying out and cookie crumbs flying everywhere, she says, more cookies, please. And my answer is, after you finish the ones you already have. Okay, we don't want a choking baby here. Finish the ones you've got. I sometimes wonder if that's the way the father looks at us. God, please just work, work out these things. I don't know what to do. Just work it and he, I'll help you, but do what I already told you to do. It's here. Live it out now. Do what you know to do and you must do it. Do we plead with God to do the very thing he commanded us to do? If so, we are just very self-righteously postponing obedience. Oh God, please help me to do this. I I'm struggling to do it. And then... We just sit back, relax, and if it doesn't happen, we get to postpone our obedience. We must work out our salvation. Go back to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We must work out our salvation. Work out in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We find this word, and there's a helpful clarification, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 39. Deuteronomy 28, verse 39 says this, You shall plant... And cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. That word for cultivate, you must cultivate vineyards. I think Tracy Nix is cultivating a couple vineyards, right? A couple little gardens. I've seen them on Instagram. That's work. You don't get to 
Look at a field, un, unplowed, unmowed, not made ready, and say, boy, I hope corn starts growing. That word cultivate in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the exact same word for work out in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So how are we supposed to work out our salvation? We are to cultivate it. John chapter 15, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, so we must abide in him. We must bear fruit. We must keep commandments. And we do that by abiding in him. So how do we work out our salvation? We do it by the means of grace. We do it by the means that God has given to us to live out. We do it by the the word of God, through prayer, through fellowship, through avenues that God has given for us to If I can summarize sanctification this way, this is how you know you are working out your salvation. This is how you know. You are hating sin more and doing something about it. You are loving Jesus more because of your attachment and abiding in him. And those two things ever grow. Does it mean that there aren't days where you take five steps forward and five steps back and you just feel like you made no progress? Absolutely, there are days where that happens. But as an overall pattern of your life, which it's very challenging for us to see that. It's very challenging for us to see day-to-day an overall pattern of our lives. This is why we need fellowship and accountability. Maybe a lot of us only see each other Sunday to Sunday. Uh, I had the privilege of having a little reunion, get together with some people I went to Israel with in 2007. Last night. It's been seven years. Some, seven years, yeah, seven years. Some of, some of them were very difficult to recognize. They looked so different. In seven years. Day to day, it's a difficult struggle to see the growth in godliness that you are making. The hatred for sin that is growing. The love for Jesus that is growing. That's why we need to be dialoguing together as a family. Well, we come to a crisis point here. It's 1147. Let's finish out to the very beginning of of the next point. Thomas Brooks says this. I love what Thomas Brooks says. When you're fighting sin, remember these words. O souls, when you shall see upon a dying bed and stand before a judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked. Its dress and robe shall be taken off, and then it shall appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet shall appear most bitter. Your sin that was so sweet shall appear so bitter. And that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly. And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to your soul. Oh, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell that the sight of sin, when its dress is taken off, will raise in poor souls. Sin will surely prove evil and bitter to the soul when its robes are taken off on that last day. So, sanctification, working out our our salvation, Working out our uh, sanctification is this, seeing that difference now, not waiting to unmask and unrobe the sin till that last day, but seeing that difference now. It's fighting to not waste a moment, to not waste a second living for that which God hates. It's a pattern of simple obedience, fighting to love him more and fighting to hate sin more. How do we do this? We do it, Paul says at the end of verse 12, with fear and trembling, with phobos, with phobia and tremos, tremor or trauma. 
We do this very much afraid. A lot of people look to these verses or these words and say, it's just reverential awe. And I do think that there is reverential awe in these words. But I also believe they are just literally being afraid, scared, terrified. Knowing that we have a God who created us and he is our master and we have to answer to him. David Wells, in his amazing book, God in the Wasteland, says this, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate teaching, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources by bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God's, God's amazing character rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. That's why I really don't care for frivolous worship services that just kind of pep rallies for Jesus. That might make you have warm fuzzies through the end of Sunday. And then when you realize Monday morning's coming, those warm fuzzies are going to (laughs) die. They're just going to be gone. We need a deep, deep deep-seated, deep understanding of God that will leave us terrified. For it is truly the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom to begin with. We must be terrified. But I don't think that's all that Paul means. Turn back to Acts chapter 16. Familiar passage to us because it's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Acts chapter 16. What else could Paul be meaning when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, there's an interesting connection. Lydia is saved. The slave girl is saved. You remember Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. There's an earthquake. Earthquakes are not fun things to go through. They are not little uh, easy easy experiences. They're bringing awe and fear and um, an amount of being absolutely terrified. There's an earthquake here, so I think people are beginning to be very terrified. And Paul cries out, verse 28, Acts chapter 16, verse 28, Paul cries out with a loud voice to the jailer who's about to kill himself, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then he calls for the lights, rushes in, and listen to what happens to the jailer. Trembling with fear, He fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Same exact words that are used in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, work out your salvation with absolute uh, being afraid and terrified before an awesome and holy God. But I think another meaning, another understanding of what Paul is saying is remember the beginning of your salvation. Remember the beginning of the gospel. Remember when you first accepted the gospel. Stay there. Work out your salvation in the exact same way as when you first believed. Just like the Philippian jailer. I think he would have heard these words and said, Oh, I remember trembling. I remember being terrified. And then I remember realizing there was a Savior. And Paul says, Stay there. Remember how you first received salvation, justification, and work in sanctification around the gospel. Let grace motivate your obedience. Let grace motivate your obedience. An amazing book by Jerry Bridges. Everything he writes is amazing. But a book called The Joy of Fearing God is a very helpful book in this understanding of fear 
and joy in God. There is joy in fearing God. It's not just be terrified. Being terrified before a holy God leads us to be motivated in the grace and favor that Jesus has given to us in our obedience. Finally, number three, we've seen the motivation for sanctification. Our role in sanctification, our role is to work out our salvation. Now God's role. God's role in sanctification. Verse 13. We do this because we work out because it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who is at work in us. That word work in verse 13 is the work energy. It's where we get our our word uh, for energy, energo. Um, God is the energy behind our willing and our working. God is, literally we could translate these verses, God is the energy in you to will and to energize for his pleasure. One Bible translates it this way. For the one bringing forth in you both your desires and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Now, my Bible says, for it is God. And I totally understand why it's translated that way. But there is one thing that you need to know in the Greek. In the Greek, emphasis is given to the very first word in the sentence. Emphasis is given to that very first, when a clause happens, that very first word has as much emphasis as you can give it. And Paul does not start these words by saying, because it's God working. He says, work out your salvation, God. God is working. You work, but you work because God is working. Don't don't let that command to work make you afraid and make you turn inward so much so that you forget he is the one working in you. And look at the extent of his working. His extent of working is not only to bring the externals to bear, but to give you desires to change your affections. What you once loved and held on to, you despise and you're ashamed that you ever loved it. This is why you will look different. If you are saved, the life before Christ and the life after Christ is different. Maybe if you're younger, it's a little bit less different. But it's still different. Maybe it's externally very different if you're older. Maybe it's internally very different if you're younger. But your desires change. Your desires change. He is working in us. He is the energy in us to will and to, Paul uses the same word, energy, to energize all for his good pleasure. John Owen says, God works in us and with us, not against us and without us. God works in us and with us, not against us and without us. Spurgeon says it this way, the assistance of divine grace is not given to us to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. We don't look and say, well, God's working. I don't need to do anything. God's working so we can do something. If God wasn't working, we couldn't do anything. If God wasn't working, our feeble attempts at working out our salvation would be useless. So Spurgeon says, God comes to us to work in us. What? What is he working in us? Does he work in us to be indifferent? Oh, no. To work in us to will with resolution and firmness. Uh, Does he work in us having willed to sit still? Uh, No. He works in us to do. The direct effect of the influence of grace upon the heart is to make a man active. And the more grace he has, the more energetic he becomes. A man will never overcome sin 
except by energy. And the energy that God gives us is through the grace that he gives us. Do you perceive that energy at work in your life? That's the question. C.J. Mahaney has written two amazing books, one called Living the Cross-Centered Life and one called Humility, where he describes in Living the Cross-Centered Life the tension between the work of God in us and our work in salvation or in sanctification and the salvation of sanctification, that second form of that word. In humility, he writes ways to identify evidence of grace in your life. I would encourage both. They're very small. They're very little. They're very encouraging. And they do a lot more with this topic of sanctification than I ever could. I would encourage you to read them because in those, in those amazing books, you're reminded God's at work. You may not see it. But just to give you an example, uh, did you just hate your sin sometime this week? Did you just look and go, why can I not figure this out? I keep on struggling with this and I don't want to do it anymore. Don't let that lead you to doubt. That's an evidence of grace. There's only one way you hate sin. And that is through Jesus working on your heart to bring you sensitivity to hating the very thing he died to free you from. No wonder Paul says, I'm convinced that he who began the good work and you will complete it. He started it. He's going to complete it. He worked God's part and our part. He works in us because he already worked in us salvation through justification. He works in us now. And please hear clearly that it's not like we play equal parts in this process of sanctification. If we stumble in our part, God still works. And we will, through his grace, correct the behavior and continue in our sanctification. Never being perfect, that's only in heaven. But growing in a pattern ever, ever more into Christ-likeness. But God never stumbles in his part. He never takes a break. He never stops. He never falters. That's why Paul says, I'm convinced he's going to finish it. One author says it this way, God does not work and has not worked in his good pleasure because man has worked. No, God works and has worked. Therefore, man must and can work for God works in him what is necessary for his human working. God works and has worked. Therefore, man must and can work because God works in him what is necessary for his human working. That is why we can work because God works in us. Now we have to be done because our time is out. But this is what I want to say. You can grow. There is hope. You can change, not because you are awesome, but because God has given you the grace to change your affections, to change your desires, to change your external outworkings. And if you plug into the means of grace that God has given to you, you will see change. You can grow. So can I plead with you? Go home and do two things. Maybe you can do these here. Ask your family members, ask those around who who know you best. Two questions. What evidences of grace do you see in my life? Do you see God's hand at work in my life? Do you see that? Because I think they might bring things to bear that maybe you haven't seen because you just are imperceptible to the working of God in your life. Maybe you've grown so used to God working in your life that you've forgotten how miraculous it is. And secondly, where do you see change needing to take place? And I put them in that order to be very specific. 
Let's be encouraged. God's at work. So we can work. Don't flip it around and say, we've got to work or else God's not going to work. God's at work. Let's see the areas where God is at work. And then as we see those areas, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Father, we thank you for your love. And even now as we close by just pleading with you as we sing one last song. Oh, great God in highest heaven of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Occupy those places in our lives that we are still struggling with. Own us all. Reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice, no sin remain that resists the war that you have begun in our hearts. So make us yours forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.